0: So since October 7th, it's been in my heart to talk to you guys a little bit about Israel and everything that's going on on the other side of the world. Um, We have been part of a church tradition uh, that has not focused so much on Israel and biblical prophecy as a lot of churches maybe do or can. Um, In my Christian journey, I've been part of churches that spent much more time and focus than we do. Uh, we're part of a Reformed tradition st- sort of source stream that um, that focuses much more on the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he is doing now as opposed to the future. And there's, there's great things and not so great things that come with these different emphases or lacks of, lack of emphases. But when October 7th occurred and the response of uh, the, the world was um, was making itself more visible... I just felt compelled in my heart to want to speak to you about these things somewhat, Uh, but coming from a different angle, which I hope you'll see today. What I hope by the end of the second message, I think we're going to have to do this in two messages. What What I hope by the end of the second message, at least, but starting today, is that you will see that what is happening in Israel today is deeply intertwined with the most important issues in your life. And I know that's a bold statement, but wait until the end of the second message before you, you kinda judge that. And when I say that, that that what's happening in Israel today is deeply intertwined with the most important issues in your life, I'm not making a political statement. It's not an enticement to vote a certain way, or to be involved in particular support for secular Israel or for Arab refugees in Palestine. We should care about all those people. No one in this crisis today should go without our prayers and our thoughts. And th- the truth is no one in this crisis today is purely innocent, and no one is free of suffering. The terrorism Israel faced on October 2nd, a seventh from Islamic terrorists was demonic, and it was horrifying. And the suffering of Muslims and Christians who are Arabs in Gaza, is real and is tragic and grieves God's heart. So we should pray for the peace and the salvation of Muslims and unbelieving Jews and for the enduring faith of our Christian brothers and sisters in those areas. They all need, just like us, Jesus Christ, more than anything this temporary existence has to offer. So it isn't my purpose this morning to try to parse out political perspectives or exhort you to support one. My goal is to try to explain to you, from God's perspective, Lord willing, from God's perspective, in his word, why Israel matters deeply to God, and to begin to help you see why Israel should matter to you. Can we move to the next slide, please? Just to give you a frame of reference, because many of us don't understand quite the composition of all this, you can't, even see Israel on that slide. It's so tiny, but it is that that blue sliver. If I had a little uh, radar pen, I would show you guys what to do. I wish I'd gotten my sons the radar pens they constantly ask for because now I might be able to borrow one, but I didn't. My wife, are you shaking your head, Jen, because we don't want the radar pens? It's true. But anyway, Israel is this blue little sliver right there uh, at the foot of the Mediterranean Sea at the back end. Um, it's, It's bordered by that huge country called Egypt on the bottom. That other huge, bigger country uh, on the north is Syria. And then that big, massive hunk of green is Saudi Arabia. And um, then you see Iraq. (laughs) You see, um, if you could, you'd see Iran just a little bit farther north. Uh, Not great neighbors for Israel. Um, But I just want to orient you there um, about where Israel is. So I have four points, which I'm going to try to move through. And I have a lot of scripture. And I'm not going to ask you guys to pull out your Bibles because I have put the scriptures there. But I have four points. And the first point is this to try to orient us around why Israel matters and why ultimately it should matter to us is this. The promise to Israel of a homeland. God gave Israel a promise of a homeland that is irrevocable. Starting in Genesis 12:7, long after the fall, In the Garden of Eden and long after the flood, God begins to engage directly for the first time in Scripture after those events with mankind, for the first time as we read it in the Bible, by calling one man out of what is now Iraq. It was called Ur of the Chaldeans. And God began to make promises to this one man. This is a world of idolatry, polytheism, child sacrifice, incredible sexual immorality, cruel warfare, incredible enslavement of people, incredible uh, oppression of women and children. In the midst of all that awfulness, God tells this man, Abraham, that he will be his God, that he is the only God, and that this man will have descendants who will be as innumerable as the stars in the sky. God tells this man that he will make him into a nation and that he intends to bless the whole world through this one man, And his descendants. And he also tells this man Abraham about a land called Canaan. And God says to your offspring I will give this land. In Genesis 15, 18 God elaborates. To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river. The river Euphrates. In Genesis 17 he restates this promise. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner. I will give you. And this is the part that's tricky and important. I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. Without condition, God tells Abraham that this region of the world will belong to him and his people forever. If we put together all the texts that detail this land, you can put the next slide up, please, guys. Oh, you can barely see that, can you? If we put together all the texts that detail this land, its borders extend from the Nile River in Egypt up to Lebanon and everything from the Mediterranean Sea, which is on, your, it's on the left there, that way, everything from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River, which is west to east. On today's map, the land God stated belongs to Israel includes everything in modern-day Israel plus All the territory occupied by the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. This is God's word. Again, please don't hear me making a political statement. I'm not going to try to get you guys to uh, fight for this territory or join in some war. Uh, I, I personally think that this isn't going to happen until Jesus returns, personally. And I can tell you why as we move on. but. But I, I just, I, I can say that and it might raise questions, but I, this is what God says in his word. And the land also includes parts of Egypt and Syria, plus all of Jordan, and plus some of Saudi Arabia and parts of Iraq. So it's much larger than what Israel has right now. God renews this promise to Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis 26.3. But it's important to note, he does not renew that promise or give that promise to, God's, to Abraham's son Ishmael. At that point, there's a divide. God actually says Ishmael will not inherit that land. He has other plans for Ishmael, but this land will go to Isaac. And then God does the exact same thing with Abraham's next sons, with Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. He splits them, and he says this land will go to Jacob, but not Esau. And this is important to note, because through these Fathers and sons, God keeps narrowing down which descendants of Abraham would inherit this specific land until he gets to Jacob. But even though Jacob has 12 sons, when he gets to Jacob and his 12 sons, he stops dividing. That's it. All of your sons, Jacob. In other words, all of you, Jacob. All of your descendants. I don't have to split between sons anymore. They're all going to have this land. In fact, God gives Jacob... In Genesis 28, a new name. And do you know what the new name he gives Jacob is? You can say it a little louder. (laughs) It's Israel. It's Israel. When you hear the name Israel, you are hearing the name Jacob. When you hear the name Jacob, you're hearing the name Israel in God's word. Now Israel or Jacob had twelve sons who become the twelve tribes of Israel. And it was to all of these tribes, all of Jacob and only Jacob that God gave the land when they were established as a nation. And he gave it to them, he says, as an everlasting possession. Throughout the Bible, from Genesis through the prophets, not just in Genesis, but throughout the Bible, into the prophets, God continues to reiterate this promise. Israel will be established in the land that God gave them forever. We need to understand this Because while we are all spiritual sons and daughters, if we're in Christ, we are all spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. And we are all equally beloved and one with all of his people, Jew and Gentile. And and this, make no mistake, is the matter of all matters, whether we are in Christ Jesus. This is the most important matter. But even though that's true, this promise of this land was real and important to God. And he did specifically give it to a specific people he called Jacob or Israel. God's people comprise men and, women, men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation. God promised he would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. God has no favorites. There's some tension here. So I, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. God has no favorites. He doesn't love the Jewish Christian more than the Irish Christian. Thank God. He doesn't love the Ugandan Christian more than the Jewish Christian. And yet God in his word reiterates over and over again that he has given this specific promise to Jacob and his descendants and that he is going to be faithful to his promises, just as he is faithful to all of his promises. And God's faithfulness is on display from 4,000 years back until today, and I hope to show that as we keep going. Number two, the promise to preserve Israel as a nation. God's made a promise to preserve Israel as a nation. If God means to keep his promise to give Israel a homeland, On earth, it means he must mean to keep Israel alive as a nation so they, Israel, can inherit the land and live in it. And this is exactly what the Bible teaches again and again. Around 600 years before Jesus Christ walked the earth, just around the time that God in his judgment was going to kick Israel out of the land completely because of their disobedience, right in the middle of that exile that would last a short time, relatively speaking, 70 years. Right in the middle of planning that expulsion from the land, God makes this beautiful promise to these heartbroken Israel. Thus says the Lord, this is in Jeremiah 31. This is an amazing promise. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done. Declares the Lord. Hear what God is saying. He is saying the only way that Israel, and by the way, this is bad Israel. This is rejecting him, Israel. This is the Israel about whom he says, For all they have done to me. He's speaking of their rejection and rebellion. He's saying the only way that God will ever let them cease to be a nation, that he will let them fade out of existence is if the heavens can be measured and if the moon and the stars can end, if nature, in other words, if nature itself ends. This is God's way of saying, no way. It is not going to happen. Even though they have rebelled against me, Israel will always be a nation before me because of my faithful love, which is everlasting, he says in this very chapter. I've loved you with an everlasting love. For nearly 2,000 years, Since Christ, the Jewish people have been without a homeland. For after they rejected Christ, they were judged again by God and expelled from the land by Rome. This is what Jesus says, by the way. It's not a political statement or an extra-religious statement. God warned them in Leviticus 26.33 that when they reject him, he says, I will scatter, and you I will scatter among the nations at the point of my drawn sword leaving your country desolate and your cities in ruin. And that happened completely in A.D. 70 and A.D. 135. Deuteronomy 28.64, And God shall scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. Among those nations you shall find no repose, not a foot of ground to stand upon, for there the Lord will give you an anguished heart, and wasted eyes and a dismayed spirit Deuteronomy 28:65 For 2000 years just about the Jewish people have been scattered across the globe wandering without a homeland But in all that time in all that near 2000 years here is the miracle of God's promise They have never ceased to be a nation This is called by some the mystery of history because it goes against everything we know of in sociology and anthropology. Have you ever heard of a Russian Amorite? Have you ever heard of a Swiss Chaldean? Have you ever heard of a German Assyrian? This is because, and you haven't, (laughs) this is because when a nation loses their land, when they get dispossessed of their very country, eventually they lose their culture and their national identity eventually fades away it's been asserted by some people scientists that study these things that it takes between two generations and 200 years before an exiled people who've been kicked out of their land completely loses their identity forever. Whatever culture makes them unique as a people, without a homeland, that culture eventually melts and merges into the peoples they're mixed with, and they lose their national identity. And this is why you've never heard of a Swiss Chaldean. There has never been a people, there has never been a people in all of history that has been expelled from their land and yet survived as a people to return to their land. Not one people group in history except one, the Jews. Just as God promised, they have never ceased to be a nation. And these promises are shocking and dramatic and incredible. One of the things that God promised in in Deuteronomy is that the Jewish people, wherever he scattered them, would remain small. Next week, I'll I'll try to bring that actual text. But I, I, I pulled it out for time, but I feel emboldened to speak it now. He says that the Jewish people, wherever he scatters them to the farthest ends of the world, will remain a small people. 2,500 years ago, there were approximately 10 million Jews in the world. 10 million. Through all their persecutions and scatterings, 2,500 years later, there were about 15 million Jews in the world. One historian of population growth says that I read says that the Jewish people, at this point, for, for 10 million people, 2,500 years ago, should have the third most populous population on the earth. They are 0.02% of the world's population. There's only 15 million Jews on the whole earth. There's a lot of controversy and energy about 15 million people, isn't there? It's as if God has made it so that they matter. (laughs) Point three the regathering and redemption of Israel. In fact, the wider context of these promises I just gave you in Jeremiah, it's much more glorious than just, you'll come back to the land. You'll never cease to be a nation. You'll never cease to be a people. The Lord promises to one day end their rebellion forever, not by destroying them, but by transforming them. In Jeremiah 31, the same passage, God says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel in the clans of Judah. He promises to one day in that new covenant Change their hearts unilaterally so that they will turn back to Him and they will follow Him once and for all. Today we know this promise as the new covenant, which was established through Christ's blood. Every time we take communion here at the church, do you know what we say, speaking Jesus' words again to each other? This is the cup of the what? The new covenant. In my blood. That's what Jesus said the night he was betrayed. One day God says he is going to turn Israel back to himself through that same blood of the new covenant, which was meant for them as well as us. Importantly, this chapter also includes his promise to gather them from all the ends of the earth where he had exiled them for their sin and to bring them back to the land that he promised them and to make them dwell there securely forever. In other words, God promised that even though 20 centuries nearly went by of them scattered out of that land and exiled from that land, he says, "One day I'm going to take you from the farthest reaches of the world and I'm going to bring you back to this very land that you've been expelled from." Ezekiel 37 says this. Oh wait, this is this is still Jeremiah 31. Behold, I am bringing them from the north country and I will gather them from the remotest parts of the earth and they will return here as a great assembly. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away and say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and he will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock and their life will be like a watered garden and they will never languish again. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow and destroy and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. It, speaking of Jerusalem, shall not be plucked up or overthrown any more. Here God promises that one day he will gather Israel back as a nation and they will never be scattered again. We see this even more clearly in Ezekiel 36 and 37, a portion of of Ezekiel 36. Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations which they have gone and I will gather them from all around and bring them back to their own land. And then... After that, I will save them from their backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant With them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Please again note this promise of regathering this scattered nation, this small people of God cleansing them and fixing them forever in that land given to Jacob by promise. Of course this is all the Old Testament. There's much more in the Old Testament we could quote that's very similar to this. But what about the New Testament? My last point, the future of Israel in the New Testament. So do the apostles, all of them were Jews, do they have anything to say to Israel? Yes, they do. Just one sampling. In Romans 9-11, through Paul, the apostle, is grieving the nation of Israel's rejection of Jesus. In great grief, he reminds the church that this is not the way it was supposed to be. This is not the way it is supposed to be. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for my brothers according to the flesh he means Israel. But he goes on to predict a day when Israel, as a nation, I believe this is what he is saying in Romans 11, will be restored to God through Christ. And I believe what he's intimating here is that this will take place once the Gentiles, the non-Jews, have been fully brought into Christ. Once the Amount of fullness, he calls it. He says this, I'll just read the scripture. Lest you be wise in your own eyes. He's speaking particularly to non-Jewish Christians. Lest you be wise in your own eyes. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in who are the Gentiles? Raise your hand if you know who the Gentiles are. (laughs) Raise your hand if you're a Gentile. Most of us, unless we have Jewish blood in our veins, are Gentiles. Gentile is simply a word for a non-Jew. There's Jews and there's Gentiles, all the rest of the nations. And the Gentiles have been coming to the Jewish Messiah by God's grace for 2,000 years. And Paul is making the point that when the leaders of the nation of Israel rejected their Messiah and people with them, at that point, to a large degree, the gospel went outside of Israel to the whole world. And now, people of all nations are being saved through this Jewish Messiah. But Paul says here, in this very text, Until the fullness of the Gentiles. Paul says this time is not going to last forever. He says it is until. Until. It is only until the fullness of the Gentiles has come into Christ. And then Paul says Israel will also be brought back to God. And in this way all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. One day, the deliverer, that is Christ Jesus, who came from Zion, the land of the Jews, will purify the Jews and save them as a nation once more. And then Paul explains why God will do this for a people that have rejected Christ. He says, yes, they are enemies of the gospel, at this point, he says that, and yet they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irre- irrevocable. Can we move one slide forward? And am going hold back. Can we go back? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't put this slide up there. I want you to hear this again. Paul says that even though they stand in unbelief, and, and the people, this doesn't mean that, that you can be an unbelieving Jew and go to and be saved from your sins. No, Jewish people have to be saved the same way that Gentile people have to be saved, through faith in Jesus Christ. But it means that as a nation, God is not gonna let them go, and at a future time, he is going to bring them back. And this is what Paul means. He says they are enemies of the gospel, but they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are revocable. Paul says when he made his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He meant it, and he's not going to go back on it. His gifts and calling are irrevocable. Listen, if you understand what I've said so far, you will read your Bibles better. For this is what Jesus believed and what the disciples were longing for. And when you see this, you'll see it strewn throughout the Gospels and throughout the words of Jesus and throughout the reactions of the disciples. The disciples thought Jesus was going to establish Israel as a nation forever and gather all the lost tribes back to the land and become king in his first coming. They were not ready for a rejected and crucified Messiah to some degree because of the many texts that we read today and because of texts they didn't pay enough attention to like Isaiah 53, which Jesus tried to get them to see again and again. But the point is, they weren't ready for a rejected and crucified Messiah who was going to save the whole world and not just the Jews. Even after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, they're still looking for Israel's restoration. Follow me into Acts 1. This is just this is after Jesus' whole ministry of three years, after his death and resurrection, just before he ascends to God and leaves the earth until his second coming, they ask him just around that moment, perhaps that very minute, they say, Lord, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You've died, you've risen, you're indestructible. Can we get it going now? Can we establish Israel finally and fully? Jesus' response is so important to hear. He doesn't say what are you talking about? Israel rejected me. Don't you know that the church is now the new Israel? Don't you know that it's not about Israel? It's about the world. He doesn't say that. No, he says this listen, he says, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which my father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus does not rebuke them or try to arrange their theology. Earlier in the Gospels, he'd already told them that in the renewed kingdom, the disciples would sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There's only one way they were going to understand that. And Jesus wasn't trying to confuse them. If you understand this passage right here, you understand that Jesus accepts the presupposition behind their question. Israel is to be a restored nation under the Messiah, and he is the king of Israel. What Jesus says, though, is that it's not for you to know exactly when this is going to happen. And he tells them, get busy. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and your job is to spread the message of my kingdom throughout the whole world, starting with Jerusalem, and then move out to Samaria, and then go out to Asia, and go to Africa, go to Europe, and go to America. So those are my four points. Let me ask us the rhetorical question, what does this have to do with us? Brothers and sisters, in, in just our lifetime, and the lifetime of our parents, God has ordained that for the first time in 2,000 years since the time of Christ that the Jewish people would be regathered back to Israel. In just our lifetime and the lifetime of our parents, this small sliver of about the last 70 years, God has begun to ordain for the first time in nearly 2,000 years that the Jewish people would be regathered Back to the land. You can say it was the UN. You can say it was the British Mandate. You can say it was the Zionist movement that grew out of Jewish passions. But God's in control of history, and He has ordained this. Starting the late 1800s, Christians in growing numbers, particularly in England, began to pray. They began to feel a burden that the Jewish people needed to be returned to their homeland, and so they began to pray that these scattered harassed people would be given a homeland again in Israel. And then in the early 1900s, Jewish people themselves were already sensing a great renewed desire to reestablish themselves in the promised land. These things had not happened at this peak, at this level of intensity before, since they had been expelled after their rejection of Christ. By one estimate today, there are 4,000 Jews in Israel for every one Jew that was there in 1920. In 1920, one Jew now times that by 4,000. This appears to be an unprecedented fulfillment of what God said he would do. I don't know how else to read it. When he makes a commitment that he says that one day he will regather the people of Jacob back to the land. And we see this is exactly what he is doing. What is more provoking to me, and I hope will give you pause, is that scripture seems to indicate, and I will work hard to show this in the next message, that the second coming of Jesus Christ is related and intertwined to the restoration of the Jewish people back to Israel and to a world turned against them. This isn't some, I'm not trying to be some inflammatory, date setting, off his rocker, Bible prophecy pastor. I just don't know how to look at massive amounts of scripture. Whole chapters of the prophets and deny these things. I'm not saying that we can know the day or the hour Or that we should get lost in obsessions with date settings. Surely, listen, surely the Lord wants us watching our lives more than watching the skies. If you know anything about the application of biblical prophecy, you know that's true. That when Jesus says, be ready, be ready, he doesn't mean be ready to figure out exactly when I'm coming. He means be ready, be faithful, be found serving me, be found loving my people, be found loving the lost and calling them to me. That's what he means. So we want to be much more concerned with watching our lives and hoping in him than watching the skies and trying to date set him. And yet, and yet Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they did not understand what was right in front of them regarding what God was doing in their midst. He was fulfilling prophecy in their midst. And they did not acknowledge it. Their hearts were too hard to admit it and see it. And he rebuked them this way. He said, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather tomorrow for the sky is red. Right? They were able to say, oh, the sky is red. That tells us that tomorrow is going to be beautiful. And and in the morning, you're able to say, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. He said, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the times? I'm curing the blind. I'm preaching the good news to the poor. I'm raising people from the dead. And you're asking me to do a miracle? To prove myself? If I'm I'm the Messiah? What are your heads in the sand? God has told us many things regarding the circumstances leading to the second coming of Christ. And I do not think that he did this so that we would ignore those things. So I want to spend next time looking more specifically at the relationship between Israel and the second coming. But I want to do this so that we're confident in God. Not so that we're scared or we're going to become frenzied newspaper readers. I want to do this so that we're confident that God really is who he says he is. You 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 people in this church who know me, you know I have doubts about God. I can struggle with doubt. It's been that way ever since I've been a Christian. It's so funny. Growing up in the church, I never doubted God's existence. I never doubted who Jesus was. I just felt completely isolated and lost from him and condemned. It wasn't until I came to believe the good news of Jesus Christ that he had come to change my heart and as a gift he would do that so that I could follow him. It wasn't until then that I found myself harassed and attacked by terrible doubts. And those terrible doubts, as some of you guys know, they forced me as a pretty lazy guy God used the anvil of pain to get me off my butt and get me into the word of God and start to really learn his words so that I could deal with these doubts. So my faith wasn't forged out of my great character, but out of my desire to escape pain, the pain of doubts. But in reading these things and the things I've talked to you about today, I have become more confident and I am stirred in my soul again through what I'm seeing in the world and kind of having to acknowledge isn't it strange that so much intensity and fury comes about about these this nation and people smaller than New Jersey? The Iraq Iran war killed millions. Nobody shut down a bridge over that in America. It is strange to see people who are aligned politically on such far different places. Extremists Muslims, folks given to extreme left-wing ideology finding incredible solidarity when they would not be able to probably live more than a few days together in the same home, nation, world. I don't understand it. I can't make sense of it. Except when I read scripture. And God promises to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering, in Zechariah 12, he says, I will make Jerusalem an intoxicating cup that will make the nations delirious. it will make them addicted and confused and frenzied over this. It's right there in Zechariah 12. He says, all the nations will come together and all who try to move Jerusalem from its place will injure themselves. Goodness, that feels like the last 50 years. <laughs> so when I see these things happening and I understand something of the flow of history. I just have to say, and I read Ezekiel and Jeremiah, oh my goodness, God said all this stuff would happen. He said he would do all this stuff. And it gives me hope. It gives me hope that today, his promises, that his faithfulness to Israel that I'm seeing happen, it's for me too. He's gonna be faithful to me today. If he's gonna be faithful to these people who rejected him, what's he gonna do with me who by his grace have accepted his son and need manna? today to keep walking with him and not give in to my sin or when I do give in to get up off the ground again and to believe that he's there for me. Well, it gives me hope. It gives me faith to see God controlling all of sovereign history. I figure he can deal with my, my auto bill. (laughs) You know, if he can get all the Jewish people back from Greenland and Iceland and Ireland and Iraq You know, he can figure out how we're going to pay for the (laughs) what's-it-is-is, whatever it is in your world, you know. It gives me hope that he really is God and he really is my God to see that he really is in control of history. Well, then he's in control of my history. Oh, it gives me hope to see that in in his faithfulness to his words of prophecy, I can be assured of of, of the truth of all of his words. Like no temptation will overcome you, but that isn't common to man. But I will be faithful to provide a way out so you can escape it. Or I who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Follow me and I will give you life. Whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Oh, how I need that Holy Spirit again and again and again. How weak I am in myself. And when I see that he's faithful to these very hard and very specific promises, that I can take those abstract, warm, fuzzy promises. I don't mean to denigrate them as warm and fuzzy. I just mean that I need those words for my heart. And so, predictive biblical prophecy that gets concrete and specific and God comes through on it, oh my goodness. It does does help us to fear the Lord in the right way. And so, we want to be more fully focused on giving ourselves, not to date setting, but focused on living lives that will give him joy whenever he does come because I hope we'll see today and next week or in the next message, he is coming. He is coming. Jesus Christ is gonna set his feet on the Mount of Olives just as he says he will in Zechariah 14 and we will see him. The whole world will see him. (laughs) Thank God that we would be able to know him today. There's something humbling about seeing God's love and dedication to the Jewish people. And I think about being a Gentile. You know, in Romans 11, Paul calls the Gentiles unnatural branches grafted into the natural tree. He means us to feel the honor and the humbling gratefulness that he didn't have to choose us, but he did. He did. We're his beloved just as they are his beloved. And if we know Christ Jesus even more so by his grace.